This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. So I'm very pleased to introduce Abdi Noor Iftin to Politics and Prose. Iftin currently lives in Maine, where he works as an interpreter for Somalis who have immigrated to the States. He is studying political science at the University of Southern Maine, and he plays soccer every Saturday in a melting plot league of Americans and immigrants from around the world. In Call Me American, Abdi describes how he first fell in love with America, learning English by listening to pop music by Michael Jackson and watching action films starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. His love of American culture led to his nickname, Abdi American. However, when radical Islamist group Al-Shabaab rose to power, being Abdi American was dangerous. Abdi fled to Kenya as a refugee and in a stroke of luck, won entrance to the United States in the annual visa lottery. Despite a trying, complicated journey, Abdi is now a proud citizen on the path to citizenship. I mean, proud resident on the path to citizenship. And his story is a potent reminder of why America still beckons to those looking to make a better life. Publishers Weekly describes Call Me American as a wrenching yet hopeful biography. Ifton's extraordinary saga is not just a journey of self-advancement, but a quest to break free from ethnic and sectarian hatreds. Now, please join me in welcoming Abdin Noor Iftin. Of course, I play soccer, except when it's snowing in Maine. Because <laughs> you can't play it. Um, hello. So, well, thanks for having me. It's beautiful. Uh, before, we, before I get into the book, Call Me American, um, it seems like people are so much interested in this American Life episode about Abdi and the Golden Ticket. How many of you heard this American Life episode, Abdi and the Golden Ticket? Oh, wow. So that guy's coming. He's out there. He's going to be coming soon. That's me. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is the... I've been, I've been uh, introduced to these American uh, uh, jokes. <laughs> Or as they sometimes call it, uh, uh, sarcasm. Um, so something happened today, and it was the uh, travel ban. And I wanted to um, talk a little bit about that, because somehow I feel like my book, Call Me American, um, kind of is a counter-narrative uh, to, to what happened today. So um, I would like to ask you to take for a minute and think about uh, six things that I'm going to mention, and then, and then see what you guys think. Um, what would you think if you were a combination of a Muslim, um, a person of color, a Somali, an immigrant, a refugee, a diversity lottery winner? Yeah, it's it's a things that you can hear in the news. And being the combination of those things in one person is not really easy. So that's who I am. It's a lot of things. I've never expected this to probably be happening in the United States. But the funny thing is, my book's title is not Call Me a Somali. It's not Call Me a Muslim. It's not Call Me a Diversity Lottery Winner. It's not Call Me a Refugee. It's not Call Me an Immigrant. It's Call Me American. And the idea of America, the democracy, the tolerance, the notion of um, 
of, of America has actually saved my life. And I would like to tell you why. You probably haven't read the book yet because it's just out for a few days only. Um, I was out there somewhere in the world, 9,000 miles from the United States. And I was in the midst of this confusion as a child where a war erupts at the, at the age of five. And then I was just trailing behind my mother all over the place. We, will, uh, we wandered in the wilderness, in the bush for a while. And eventually we came back to the city, Mogadishu. Um, and it had a name. It was called uh, the uh, Ocean City. And then later they nicknamed it the, the most dangerous city in the world before anything happened in Syria or Yemen or anywhere else. But unfortunately, it was not on the news. You couldn't hear that until one day, I believe, New York Times or Washington Post had published a picture of a young boy, very thin, uh, very malnourished, kind of dying with um, 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 famine and hunger and, and, and war that was happening. And then the US decided to intervene, and they sent troops on the ground. So I was right there. I was like that boy. And uh, I, I don't want to give out, <laughs> give out everything in the book, but the Marines arrive. And for the first time, at the age of seven, I come face to face with these guys in their uniforms and their guns. But the guns are not pointed in my face. Guns are pointed away from my face. And this was amazing. It couldn't happen. For those of you who, um, who have lived through civil war, you, you totally understand what a militia looks like and how they thrive um, harassing and you know, torturing and creating violence. But that was totally something new to me. And however, war happens, the Marines leave, and then I decide to um, feel like, or have a dream, or have a feeling where I wanted to be like them. So um, I'm not trying to take you away from what happened today. I still want to stay um, and tell you my feelings about it. My feeling is. Uh, the travel ban is an encouragement and a happiness and a win and a gift to groups like ISIS or Al-Shabaab or Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda. And I will tell you why. So the travel ban is banning this specific group of people from coming to these countries, including Somalia and I believe Syria, and I believe Yemen. So what's happening in these countries? These guys are thriving, Islamists are thriving. The, the, the reason they're thriving is because they're taking advantage of the weak. Everyone is poor, everyone is refugee, uh, displaced, but they don't have anything else to do. And my story is one thing that saved my life was the hope, the dream, and the, the understanding of a life outside of what I was living at the time which actually was America. And if you have that kind of passion where you feel like something else is out there that's going to welcome you, that's going to be uh, to accept you as who you are, you don't have, you don't have to live the reality uh, where, you know, at the time where like, you don't have to carry again and fight for any militia. So as we speak today, specifically what happened today on the media, it kind of takes me back to my teenage days. And it gets me in that specific moment where, you know, 
I feel like, um, what if I didn't learn English from watching movies? What if uh, uh, they, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was not there? Um, what if these action movies weren't there? What if, you know, or what if those existed, but then they could tell you you're not allowed to go live in this life? I think, you know, the other option that I had at the time as a teenager, I'm realizing that learning English is not going to help. So I would definitely end up in the hands of the recruiters, which um, they have very good speakers and they could easily recruit you or, you know, hire you in their, um, in their things. And they, ha they have so many things to tell you. And that's what they were doing at the time. However, I ignored it and I totally refused to do that. Even though my mother was arguing with me and there she wanted me to go, one you will read that in the book. She wanted, me to, she wanted me to go one way, which was like, you know, there's only one way out. And I feel like whatever is happening is God is punishing us because we, you know, we were not faithful enough for our culture, for our religion, and everything else. And I somehow protested and I said, I don't believe so. You know, I mean, you can, you can go somewhere else and, and live a happy life. So what's happening today is a win for, for those type of people to be able to tell the youth that, you know what, I told you this, America is an enemy of Islam, and they're not going to accept you in their countries, so forget about that, and we're doing this. And they can hire and recruit you. This happened practically when my brother and I, for those of you who hired this American life, we were stuck in this apartment, and the KM police somehow unleashed all their anger and frustration upon the Somali refugees living in this small neighborhood in the eastern uh, Nairobi, when um, uh, a group of Islamists from Somalia purposefully attacked a mall and killed almost 70 people. And the main reason was to not actually kill those people, but it was to set the government of Kenya against the refugees, and they were successful in doing that. And then what happened after that? You heard everything on the radio. They were trying to get all this poor, vulnerable refugees, you know, out of the country. And somehow they couldn't do that, even though some refugees were voluntarily trying to get out. They, weren't, they were not um, prepared for it. They, they didn't have flights or ships or anything that could carry all of these people, thousands of people. So what did they do? It was, uh, I call it a concentration camp. They used a, uh, one of the soccer fields in Nairobi where they put up put, uh, all these thousands of refugees, crowded, and some women were pregnant, um, gave birth in the middle of that um, craziness. And this was specifically a tough time for me because that's when I applied for the U.S. Green Card Lottery and I was accepted. And I had to go through uh, uh, some process, including interviews and putting together some paperwork. And this has happened and everyone was disappointed. When I tried... When I tried to go out to get these papers, the most closest person in my life was my brother, who always told me, go ahead, do it, don't ever give up. At this moment, actually thought that enough was enough, and he told me, don't do it. This is, you know, this is not going to happen. So I accepted the reality that they either have to send you to the concentration camp or go back to Somalia. And he said it specifically because it was two months until we were not able to step outside of the apartment. And we were, um, 
we were out of food, out of water, and we were starving our, ourselves to death. And then I told my brother, I said, America's my last hope. If this does not happen, it's not going to happen ever again. Because this was a immigration lottery. It was not a non-immigration lottery. A non-immigrant lottery is like if you apply for a student visa, which I did. And then when I went for my interview, they laughed. And they said, you know, you're a refugee. And this non-immigrant visa actually means if you go to the United States and finish your studies, you're going to have to come back. But he said, tell me one place in the world where you feel welcome that you can come back. And I said, it doesn't exist. If I go to the US, that's the only place where I feel welcome. And that's the only place where I have to stay for the rest of my life. And he said, well, in this case, I'm not going to approve your visa. And he was right. And I was not disappointed. I totally understood. But the lottery was different. The lottery was an immigrant visa, which means you don't have to come back. You go to the US, you get your green card, and you stay there for the rest of your life. The difference, though, was um, I wasn't considered as a refugee coming to the United States with the diversity visa lottery. So I haven't received the, uh, a counseling for uh, trauma or PTSD or anything. So I was considered as one of those 50,000 people who received their visas that specific year in 2014 who arrived in the US with me in different places, including people from Canada, United Kingdom, uh, countries in Europe, countries in Asia, countries in Africa, countries in uh, Southern America. So what, what does this tell you? That's exactly America. That's what makes America great again. We're talking about 15 million people every year desperately trying to apply for the diversity visa lottery. And once they win or get selected, the process is easy for some countries. Like if you're in the United Kingdom or in Canada and you get selected, the process is pretty much easy. You have to show a proof that you have finished high school and a short interview and you get accepted. But I was part of these 15 million people at the time that had played the lottery was accepted um, or you know, had been uh, uh, selected. But the process of going for the interview at the time was the most difficult, treacherous journey that I've ever been. And you, you heard that in This American Life. So why was it, why was it difficult? It's, you know, um, it's easy. If you, if you look at it uh, uh, um, in, in Somalia had a period of uh, whiteness for the world, not for us. So what 1993 or 94, when the US Marines withdrew from Somalia, they turned their backs against everything that was happening in Somalia. There was no Islamists. There was no um, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Al-Shabaab or Boko Haram, but there were militias fighting in tribes. And then in this case, to the world, it was just a quiet place. It, it, they didn't care what was happening to the ordinary people like myself. So my book talks about exactly what happened within this period that you guys have not been able to see on the television or on the radio. And what happened? So um, it's a world of true. Like they are there, the militias are there. Um, but then the good thing was we had the freedom to do what we needed to do. And that's when I started running around, going to the movies and picking up some uh, English words and trying to push myself, you know, far away from the uh, um, culture. You know, our culture dictates sometimes the way we live as, as children and our parents and trying to guide us. 
So I was kicked out of the house and living on the streets, but doing some hip hop dancing, walking all over the place um, and building up some gang, a group of friends. And then I told them the best thing we could do, the job we could do is to visit houses that have weddings and we could dance and we can make some money. That's who I was. And then what happened? Out of this craziness, they called me American. <laughs> Abdi American. I was so happy with that. I said, great. Wow, that's a good name. So keep calling me Abdi American. And I was proud of it. I was really, really so proud of it. I had a girlfriend. My girlfriend's dad hated me. I was the only idiot that he hated in town because I was this guy they called American, and he didn't like that. So in this case, I could only go around the house and come to the window and talk to her briefly and run away. That was the life I was living in at the time. By 2006, the quietness I was talking about was interrupted by the arrival of Al-Shabaab. And then what did they do? They whipped me so bad for going to the beach with a girl. Um, they warned me of the nickname that I had. Um, they tried to recruit me several times. I went into hiding. And the people that were my friends in the same neighborhood were easily recruited into this um, Islamist group. And they were part of the team that was actually trying to find me anywhere. So one day I could hide in the house. Another day I could go into the next, you know, so they could never find me. So I was spending every night a different place. Um, until I was able to do something, um, which was tell my story. And the reason I, I did this was um, because you couldn't hear anything else coming out of Somalia. The only thing they did was they created a movie called Black Hawk Down, which some of you guys have seen it. And it does not tell the whole story. It just tells you the Marines landing and getting into militias, and then they leave. That's it. But I just want to show you the life that existed at the time before anything happened in 2006, how life had been, how we could do things, and... Uh, out on the streets. Um, and then, you know, the, the conflict gets really, really, really bad by, by 2008 when uh, America sponsors African troops and they land on the ground and they get, they get into a fight with the militias and militias are losing arms. And, and, and you know, they're fighters so much. So many of them are really killed in airstrikes, tanks and all of this. And they were just recruiting people they needed people. And I was in this limbo where I, could, I felt like this was happening. They either are going to find you or what could you do? Nothing else. I had no other option at the time to get myself out or escape this situation except one truth, which was tell my story to the world. So I started speaking to America by recording myself on a cell phone. But before that happened, I met this American journalist who was hiding himself in the trunk of a car, running all over the Mogadishu, meeting militias. Um, and then I saw him because he was taking pictures. And I walked up to him, and his bodyguards walked up to me, and they said, we're going to shoot you. Get away. And then as we were arguing, he comes up, and he says, let him in. So I started talking to him for three hours. He puts my story together, publishes it in a newspaper, and NPR finds out about it, and they say, will you be our man on the ground? Wow, you know, this guy who just learned English from movies and becoming a reporter. And I said, I will think about it. And I talked to my mother. I whispered into her because it's not something that you could say out loud. And she said, hell no. 
Don't even try that. My brother was uh, in a refugee camp in Kenya for nine years, and he emailed back and he said, go ahead and do it. Because what have you got to lose? Nothing. And I said, great, okay, that's all I needed. So I needed that Porsche. I started recording myself in a cell phone, um, and then the stories went out to the US. And then what happens? The Americans listen, and there's this stranger, a woman in Maine, writes me a long email, and the email's title was excruciating, gorgeous, and uh, painful. And I read that several times to figure out what she was talking about. And she went to Afghanistan. Her name is Sharon McDonald. She went to Afghanistan, and she has a son who's 20 years old at the time. And she, she you know, compares me to what she had seen in Afghanistan. And she says, not many people know about this, but I somehow feel exactly what you're going through. So in this case, I'm here to help. What can I do? And I said, get me out of here. Um, within five days, she put together an, a team that composes of eight people called Team Abdi. So Team Abdi gets me out of Somalia. I come to Kenya, join my brother. And that's, that's when, uh, you know, life has, that, that's a different chapter in my, in my life again. It's like, you're no longer a displaced person in your own country. So you're officially a refugee. And this refugee center in, in Kenya just, they don't even ask me when I was born, they just put down January 1 because every refugee was, every refugee was, was born in January 1 according to them. Even though I tried to come up with my own birthday, I told them, June 20th, please. And then when the paper came out, it said 1-1. And I was like, what's going on? I was like, well, you're like everybody else. Every refugee was born on January 1. I, well, I accepted. I was sticking with it. And the lottery comes, I win the lottery and uh, I end up in Maine, and I will tell you a little funny story in Maine. I mean, I land in Boston, right? And I was wondering if the gravity <laughs> in the US felt different. So I was walking like the guy on the moon. <laughs> but everything felt normal. I didn't trip. I didn't fall. So I walked into uh, Logan, and then you see all this breaking news. Michael Brown was shot and killed in Missouri. Well, I proceeded. I was like, whatever, this is America. You know, I don't know if that's a movie. Um, and then they, the officer, the um, you know immigration officer, um, gives me a form. I have to fill out the form, and the form says, "Am I Caucasian, black? You know, whatever is, is in there, Asian, whatever." And I was like wondering, who am I? Seriously, who am I in this list? I've never identified myself as black. You, you agree with me? It's like funny to to just you know, it's funny to come from somewhere where you identify yourself with your tribe because everybody else looks like you, come to, into a different place where you have to identify yourself with your uh, with the skin, the color of your skin. And she helped me put black in there. And she was just somehow wondering, what's wrong with this guy? You know, in her mind. Um, so the family drives, the drives us up from Maine and picks me up from Boston. And we, we are on the road, 95. For those of you who know, the, link, the, the road that links Maine and uh, and Massachusetts, and I'm like, what's going on here? It's night, it's so dark, you can't see anything. And I'm wondering, where are these skyscrapers? What's going on here? Uh, we end up going to the house, and then I wake up early in the morning, I look through the window, and all I can see is deer, <laughs> turkey, the horse, chickens. Well, the family has a barn, and they have a farm. And that's all I can see. I was like, this looks like the Walking Dead movie kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, I came out, I was running around, just, you know, 
um, being, of course, a mix of happiness and shock. And the family take me around to the neighborhood and we knock at doors and uh, they say, he's with us, don't call 911. <laughs> this was when Michael Brown was shot and killed a day before. And then this was the story that was all over the place in 2014. And the Black Lives Matter just started and it was going all over the place. And I have no connection with all of this. So I'm this guy who came here through all of this craziness that happened in my life. And all I needed was peace. And then they got me into something else where like, I have to think about my own safety. And I was in Yarmouth, Maine. Zero diversity. I, I, don't, I didn't see anybody who looks like me. I'm not driving. Everyone is driving in the area. There's no bus services. There's no train. And they said, we're going to get you a bike so you can bike around. That's what I did. I was biking around for a while in Maine. And eventually I said, you know, everything looks difficult. You got so much food in the refrigerator, but I don't even know how, like, you know, why you need all that food. And uh, you know what I'm talking about, the life. So, however, um, it was, to me, it was a gift to live in, in this part of the world where there was the Somali community that I got connected with. And there was this uh, sponsoring community that I stayed with who actually got me introduced to Thanksgiving, how to eat apple pies, and actually how to fix, how to cook them, <laughs> and steaks, hamburgers, and then um, Christmas. Of course, yeah. I, you know, they, get, they got to let me do the wrapping. The, f the first one was a little horrible. I was like, I wasn't sure. So they were doing it for me. And I'm like, what's gift? The gift is for someone, you know, you don't have to show them. So I got all the things and I spread them all over the place. I said, you need to show me how to wrap these things. This is for you. And you're like, no, don't say that. <laughs> wrap it. Wrap it and then write the name. And that's how it works. Okay. And then, um, so that was this, the first year. That was the introduction and everything else went okay. Next few times. So I lived with uh, a group of Somalis in one apartment in Portland, Maine. And we have been, uh, I have received the greatest freedom in the entire world where I was able to go exercise my faith. We could go to the mosque any time, any day, um, and nobody was gonna shoot me in the head, although there was no road blockade, and the cops were not after me. So it was amazing. That kind of feeling, they uh, privilege that you guys have taken for granted, the extended human rights, the peace, the stability, all of that to me was just really wonderful. And this American life airs my, uh, my story, and then thousands of people reach out, and they say, wow, you know, first of all, I didn't know about this diversity lottery thing, but it seems like people who are not in the U.S. have their eyes in the U.S. <laughs> and they know every way to come to this country. They figure their ways out. And the main reason is not to come here and steal something or take something away from your land or from yourselves and go back to our countries and invest. I think majority of these people are coming here to be part of it, to contribute, to give, and also, most importantly, to accept. And that's what makes it wonderful. Do you guys, who, who likes salad? You guys eat salad? So salad is a combination of so many different things, right? Test is good. So that's exactly what I think multicultural actually means. You know, a different ingredient coming into one thing, and then it test is pretty good. So I, America should be like that. And it, of course, was. And that's how I actually, um, I believe, come here, even though it was a, a struggle. But I came here and reunited myself with 
some Africans that I would ever, never be able to meet. In Kenya, I've never met a South African or Rwandan or Ghanaian. But now we play soccer with at least 23 countries from Africa and introducing myself. And it's just amazing to have all of these wonderful friends and say like, oh, my friend, my brother from Africa, nice to meet you here. You know, because that America brought us all together and then we talk to each other, what do you do? And everything seems like it's doing a great job. For those who don't speak English or, you know, at least no one sleeps, no one takes welfare as far as I know, except if you're disabled or anything. But these are hard-walking people and we're out there in Maine and we know each other. And we come together in the evenings when everybody gets out of work and we play soccer and hang out and do fun things. And then we go back to our lives. So, I hope you guys will read this, um, Call Me American. It's an interesting book. Especially for those of you who were following the, um, who, who heard this, uh, this American Life episode of uh, Abdian Dugolin Ticket. So, the book has details from the beginning to the end. And don't, please don't believe that, don't think that I'm disappointed with America. It's not true. I have the right to be disappointed with whoever is running this country, the White House. But a good thing is he's not a king. So I'm hopeful he's going to be leaving. And this administration is going to be gone. So it would be bad if I was living in Saudi Arabia by now, because I know that guy's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> so that's, what, that's, what, that's the good thing about this country, right? But we're fighting. We're doing what we can. I know I only have a green card right now, which means I can go anywhere and come back. I'm not illegal, but at the same time, I'm really scared. And I never thought this would have happened in the United States. I never thought that I would be scared. Well, 2015, before this president arrived, I, I went into Canada three times just for fun. Drive across Quebec and then drive all over to Niagara Falls and then go to the other side. It was fun and then come back. Nothing happens. I show my green card. Oh, welcome. You know? And so I felt like home. Now, I have a feeling that when I drive, you know, this ice thing going on in the area and all of that, they could do anything. Or, worse than that, the Twitter um, rockets that happen every day from the president, you know, he, he can wake up tomorrow and say like, oh, all the green card holders from uh, these seven countries, you know, we can reconsider your case and feel, for those of you, we can throw you out of the country. He can say So it's dangerous. It's, you know, unpredictable. Um, but that's not gonna, I've been through a lot. I've been through tougher than this. But to me, this is the dead end. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not crossing into Canada. I'm not going to Alaska and then cross into Russia. I'm not going to do that. This is home. And I'm going to stay here and I will fight for it. Now let's open to the public for questions. How many more years until you get citizenship? Uh, one more year. One more year. Yes, sir. I heard that you had a problem because your school transcripts weren't signed. How did that happen? So I, w I will answer that question. The transcript was just a, just, you know, a, a, they just needed to deny my case, basically. Um, and the, the transcript wasn't signed, but I got it from the school. Mm -hmm. And they were just looking for yeah. something Somebody's that they could tell me to, like, you know, hold on, <laughs> we're going to put you on administrative processing. And then diversity lottery expires in September. So if this was around July, 
And then September was around the air, you know, around the corner. And when it gets to September, and they will say, "Oh, the whole thing expired," so you you have to reapply again, you know. So that's what they were trying to do, just push me to the debt, you know, to the deadline, and uh, because they were not quite sure, Somalia was part of the uh, uh, countries that the U.S. has considered as a as terrorist uh, heaven, you know, where Islamists run everything, and they couldn't trust a young man who is from Somalia just out of nowhere and then go to the United States. So they were basically thinking automatically to eliminate everybody, you know, like that, unless you're a family, unless you're, you know, have wives and kids and like that. So I was in this limbo. And I think they were just trying to deny me unless the BBC guy, my friend Leo, called and said, we're working with him. We're doing this documentary with him. So are you guys going to, you know, approve his case or no? And then that's, I think, when they thought, okay, so he's not what we think. And let's approve his visa. So it was, you know, it was determination plus some luck. That's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, my wife and I were in the Peace Corps in Somalia in 66, 68. And I went back in 93 as part of Operation Restore Hope. And oh, as, wow. you've, as you've described in your book, I mean, the destruction was just total. But it wasn't only physical. It was, it was all the archives, all the history, all the muse museum pieces. So to what extent do you think it's possible for young Somalis like yourself to reconstruct for the new generation of Somalis living in the diaspora the history and the culture and the, the richness of Somalia? Oh, that's a very good question. And uh, I'm, I'm part of those who haven't seen all this beautiful infrastructure that our country had. And I remember my mom talking about when she first came to Mogadishu, the statues that she could see in the uh, roundabouts in Mogadishu, but I haven't, I wasn't, you know, um, lucky enough to remember either if I had seen that or not. But the only thing that I, that I saw was the structure um, that's completely demolished. And then I could, yeah, that's where it was. But um, I think that, that that question would be, when will Somalia be ever peaceful? Because that's when we can reconstruct our identity, the things that we have lost in the war. Um, including all of these uh, statues and monuments that we had in Somalia. And then if you look at it, everybody's hopeful. Somalis are hopeful, and they think that something is going to come back some, sometime soon. Um, by 2011, when I was in Cairns, refugee, I thought that by 2018, Somalia is going to be peaceful. And now we're going on a dark path as well, because things don't seem like they're happening. So it's easy to start a war, but it's, it probably takes generations to rebuild and recover from that. And unfortunately, Iraq had a war, pretty short, you know, 2003. And then now they're rebuilding it. Things are returning back to, to normal. But I feel like somehow the world isn't paying attention to Somalia. They, they are not interested at some point, unless it's militarily. Like the US still has uh, some bases, uh, boots on the ground, uh, uh, drones that are flying everywhere. Turkey is, you know, taking over the, the, the few pockets of, uh, of the government in there, and then we have now uh, the, United, the United Arab Emirates, and all of these people are just fighting over for their strategic basis uh, with what's happening in, in the Middle East, the war that's happening in Yemen and other places. So somehow we have a different phase of war that's happening in Somalia, where people like me, when I look at when I read the news every morning, waking up, news about Somalia, it just gives me, um, it just disappoints me. You know, because there's no tiny piece of evidence that things are getting back to normal. It seems like 
there's an entire generation that were born outside, probably the second generation now, who don't, some of them don't even speak Somali. So they completely lost their identity and they're moving forward with whatever they have. And I would say we're on average 10 million people. And I would say half of the entire nation is not within the borders of Somalia. They're everywhere. Like if you go to China, you can see Somali refugees somewhere. So we're just this nation that's scattered all over the place. Um, and if you see the number of refugees that are crossing the Sahara Desert, the oceans going into Europe, Somalis can be over 30% of those, you know, people riding, riding the boats. So, yeah. All right. So I've been a foreign student since 1995. I came from Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> and I have an extensive background. I went to Howard University. Um, I have a degree in accounting. I did a law degree also in Columbia University in New York City. What do you think we can do as foreigners uh, to change the perception of, of people that live here about why we come here? And because most people, they don't know. They haven't traveled to where we're from. We've traveled to where they're from, but they haven't traveled to where we're from. So I think, what would you do to, to bring a light on folks who haven't traveled so they can understand why we do the things we do or why we have a desire to come to a bigger country to, to do things better. Most of the time, foreign countries, the economic background is small mm -hmm. and there's only one limit to the country and you could only get so far, but when you, when you have bigger aspirations, you try to come to do bigger things and obviously most people want to come to America because it's all they know sometimes. Mm -hmm. you know? So what, what, what would you do to to have people, you know, to broaden people's minds about where, you know, where we all come from and why we come here. Right. Um, that well, that's a very interesting question. You're a student. You, you know, I've been a I've been a foreign student since 1995. I came there. You go before 9/11. And you just graduated from Howard University. Yeah, I graduated from Howard um, about 10 years ago. Wow. Okay. And and I I worked actually. I worked. For so. Let me ask you this. Firm. You came here with a student visa. I'm still a student. You're still a student, but you're still, I haven't changed my status as of today. Oh, okay. So you still are B1, whatever I'm they still, call it. Yeah, I'm still an F1 student. F1, okay. F1 student. Right. So that's interesting, isn't it? So look at, look at this young man. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's offering, right? He's, he's here, and America provides this education opportunity, and he took advantage of that, but he's, he's a tax bearer. That's the way I see it. You're working, you, you're paying taxes. Um, but the question of, you know, some people are, it, there's a difference between immig immigrant and refugees. Um, he's an immigrant. He, he came here from a, a country that's not a war-torn, but he's just looking for the opportunity, economic opportunity, to get here. And there's the refugees who are, on top of everything else, looking for safety. And then once they find that, they can move forward and find other, you know, take advantage of other opportunities. The good thing about America is you come here and you're like everybody else. I mean, they don't call you they don't give you a refugee ID. It does, the U.S. doesn't provide that. If you go to other countries, cross into from Somalia to Kenya or from Syria to Turkey, they just give you a refugee ID, which is that that's what you have, and it's permanent. It doesn't matter how long you are in the country—50 years, 60 years—it's not going to change from refugee ID to a citizenship. So that is one wonderful thing that the U.S. is providing. Once you get here, um, if your asylum is accepted or no, but the good thing is you can go to school and you can be part of the community. 
and somehow um, the asylum program is a program that's run by the U.S. and it's congressionally approved the way that the way I see it, and it means you have you just you know they will talk to you and you have to prove that you have been through a tough time and the reason that you can't go back to your country not only because of the war but because of lack of opportunities, and somehow they will be able to approve your case. I, I have some friends that are from peaceful African countries, but they sought asylum and somehow they got it. Um, we could talk to them how, how they did that, but you can explain yourself why you don't want to really go back to your country. Maybe you're educated you know, from Howard, but you don't want to go back and end up not finding a job. But somehow, but the most important thing is you're probably supporting your family back home. So you're not financially supporting anyone. Well, our stories are a little bit different. Like, uh, none of my family is here, so I'm the only one. So you can understand the pressure that I have economically. You know, the money that I make, half of that goes goes back home. And my mom is uh, is in the war in the in the war zone. They're not allowing me to bring her here now because I'm still a green card holder. And they they you know they ask me to wait until I become a citizen, and then I will be able to, you know try an application to bring her, uh, file an application to bring her over here. So thank you for sharing your amazing story. Um, you're a great communicator. I don't know how Arnold Schwarzenegger taught you to speak English, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow he did. So um, your, your story is, has such resilience and, and survive, uh, just being a survivor that just astounds me that you're here. And I'm very grateful that you're here. I wish, well, I think you have a bright future. I hope it's in politics. You could do a lot of things, but you could really do our country a favor by being the face of um, immigration. Our country is born from immigrants, and we've periodically gone through history of fear of the unknown and closing the doors and then opening the doors. We're in one of those periods where we're closing the doors, driven by fear, I think. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, our leadership encourages that fear and stokes it. So uh, you, are, you are the antidote to that fear uh, because of your story. And I think people can relate to you. So I wish it could get to a wider audience. Um, maybe this book tour will give you an opportunity to do that. So. Uh, I'm just sad that the travel ban, uh, I'm just thinking, so I don't, this is a question. Could you ever go back to Somalia and return here or is the travel ban complete and total, do you know? The travel ban happened today. I haven't read what's in yeah. there. But is it um, a, I was just yeah. all over the place. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, I'm not going back now. I have a green card. Legally, um, I can go back because I have a green card. Um, but then going back to Somalia is another red flag because they're just wondering what you were doing over there. Why are you going back? And Yeah, and now every, every dollar that we send back home is screened by the U.S. government. They're wondering if we're supporting mm -hmm. Al-Shabaab or Islamic terrorists. Mm -hmm. So that's what we go through every time mm -hmm. we're trying to send money back to our families. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the U.S. government had blocked, mm -hmm. completely stopped the money that goes back there. And then what happened? Mm -hmm. Thousands of people were starving. Because that's how, you know, the economy, there's nothing else that people are doing. They're, fee you know, leaving on the money, amount of money that we're sending, uh, the community is sending from countries like the U.S. and Canada back home. So um, I'm not really feeling comfortable trying to even get into Canada. <laughs> not, no, I'm not going to get on that flight to, to, to go anywhere yeah. right now. Yeah. And with this travel ban right now, I mean, I'm, I'm just scared if, if I would be able to go back to Maine 
but it's a local flight. And right. I hope everything, <laughs> I hope everything goes okay. Right. But I mean, I'm so confused because I, I agree with you. My story is a counter narrative of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. You know, he, um, the moving population, the president himself, the moving population, he calls them money names, including invaders, invasion, infestation, mm -hmm. animals. You know, so it just, it makes you think uh, if you are his supporter or if you have some sort of hesitation of like, if you have never met an immigrant, you would definitely believe what he's trying to say. Mm -hmm. But then if, for those of us who have been through this, this thing, we're not rapists, we're not invaders, we're, we're just people who are looking for safety. And America is a great country that has to happen to be that place where we could come, settle down, and breathe, and then start a life. So that's most important, why we're coming here. Uh, and that's the reason the president's grandfather came to this country and his wife came to this country. So I guess he shares that in common. But well, why is he doing that? Yeah, thank you so much. That was great. Um, hi, I have two quick comments and one question. Uh -huh. One thing about the travel ban: um, if it doesn't affect, so if you were to go back to Somalia, but now would be a problem. But once you get a citizenship, if you go back, you can still come back here. It's not about where you're flying from, it's about what your nationality is. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I was in Chad or if I was in Sudan, I could also come back, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, and just mm -hmm. as you would be once you get citizenship. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, um, because I work in asylum and refugee law, um, the you can get asylum from any country. Um, it's not only countries that are in war or in turmoil, mm -hmm. but it has to do with five particular reasons. You have to be persecuted and your country is either unwilling or unable to protect you. So it doesn't have to be, um, just to clarify, so it doesn't have to be um, a country that's at war, like Jamaica, for example. A lot of LGBTI refugees say right. they're unsafe in Jamaica, and it, you know, I mean, I don't know all the details of, of uh, the situation there, but just to say that there, you can, you can be a refugee from any country, like you said, you could be a refugee from Nigeria, you could be a refugee from, you know, Botswana, right. if, if you meet certain criteria as to why you left. Um, and then finally, my question um, is, uh, I, I might have missed some of your details of your story, but um, my question is, there. yes, well, I'm excited to buy it now that I'm here. Um, but all that being said, um, you mentioned something when I came in about your brother, you know, you joined your brother in Kenya, so I'm just curious, were you in Dadaab, Kakuma? Do you still have family there? Are you communicating with them? How's that going? And, and uh, yeah, that's it. So who has been to Dadaab? Wow, so there you go. So you know what the dub looks like? I do. It's, it's a flat land, it's a desert, but then it's the size of what? Uh, uh, you know, 400,000 people. Yeah. Maybe Mark knows better. Yeah, but, but it's, it's larger than Washington, D.C. It's much larger than Washington, D.C. We, so we're talking about an entire city, which turns into a country. And the Kenyans are not allowing these people to build a permanent structure. So there are refugees stuck in there and the Kenyans are so confused. They want them there because the humanitarian agencies are coming and providing food and somehow they get money that way. And they don't, they don't want to kick all the refugees out of the country. So, no, I did not. I just passed through there. And then went to Nairobi. On my way to Nairobi. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. And I went there actually another time when I felt like nothing was happening in Nairobi because yeah. we don't get assistance from the United Nations. And the only way you can get assistance is, is to go camp? back to the camps and register yourself. And every week they just give you 
you know, a small portion of rations um, with the money that you guys have provided because the money that the United Nations feeds to refugees is the tax dollar that everyone in the U.S. is giving. You know. um, so anyways, it was, it was harsh. It was incredibly a place that I could never think of leaving. But the people who decided to stay and live there were people who gave up on all hopes and decided that it might take 20 years, but there's a process called resettlement where you might be able to be picked up by, the, by either the U.S. or Sweden or other countries, and then that's what they have been waiting for. But to my brother and I, we were just two young men, and uh, the process could still happen. But we decided to just come back to Nairobi and start hawking, selling socks and hats so on the streets and make some money that way. Where is your brother now? I'm just curious. Um, well, I have some good news and some bad news. Okay. Well, the first thing is um, he's still in Nairobi. Uh -huh. um, once I left, he married, and then he got twins. Uh -huh. um, the U.S. has sent him a final denial letter mm -hmm. where they say, you're done. And that was after one week when the White House introduced the travel ban. So in this case, he was given a letter that says, don't even try again. So that was done. He, was, he gave up on the U.S. Uh, there's a group of team, Team Abdi. I don't know if you were here when I talked about that team. It's like eight people. Oh, yeah, yeah. They changed their name into Team Hassan. And Hassan is my brother's <laughs> name. <laughs> And then what we did, and I was, I was among them, sorry, we became nine, eight plus one. So we raised money, $28,000, and applied for a Canadian process for him uh, through a refugee agency. And he was accepted. So he's going to be in Toronto pretty soon. So that's, that's a great thing. I'm not sure if I still can do that. I don't think I want to do that now. Yeah, I would be freaked out. Hi. Hello. Um, just bouncing off of what she said earlier, I'm a American citizen, but just because you are an American citizen doesn't mean you can't be intimidated when you're leaving the U.S. I've grown up here, and in traveling to London, I've been like mm -hmm. pulled aside for 40 minutes for whatever reason, but that doesn't keep you safe. That's what I was going to say. But um, first off, I wanted to thank you for writing this book. There's not enough um, literature on Somali uh, and just we're as a second generation Somali it's hard to feel connected to your culture um, so I wanted to also bounce off the other gentleman who spoke earlier about preserving culture and if you have any recommendations on like um, literature or how you keep connected to Somalia while you're here mm -hmm. instead of you know as you come into the U.S. It's a salad, but it's a melting pot. You get washed out a little bit right. as right. the years go by and as right. the generations move on. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I totally understand that. Yeah. I mean, Somalis have been fleeing our country since 1991. So I'm assuming that your parents was one of those first generation that moved out and somehow stranded in the refugee camps and that you were born here. Oh, you okay. <laughs> I don't know why you did that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why you did that, but it makes sense. <laughs> Probably running away from the dictatorship or whatever. Um, but that, yeah, that's, that's exactly what she's just saying. It's exactly what my mother is ask, asking me on the phone every day. She's like, what happens to your kids if you get married? And I'm like, they will be American. <laughs> and actually, I'm going to accept that because that's the reality. And for now, we're homeless. I mean, we, you can't go back to the country uh, of your mother because you're not going to, you're not, you know, it's still, there's so many bad things that could happen to you. 
And I left Somalia 2011, pretty short time. And I've been stranded in Kenya for four years as a refugee. But still, I remember things vividly and everything that happened, the wars and all of that. And my mother's there, my sister's there, and she, my sister's married and has kids. And they're living in this life. And I totally understand every street that they are, you know, uh, moving to whenever they, the war happens, they move to a different place. But would I go back? I kind of think every, every night, you know, I have nightmares and I'm still dreaming in, in Somali, which is funny. Because I haven't still try, uh, started dreaming in English. And a friend I have told me, once you start dreaming in English, that's when you become an American. I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> Might be tonight, who knows? And uh, I will wake up in the morning running all over the place, which is funny because you already have that privilege. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm like standing in the middle of this intersection and I see the communities. I, I'm an interpreter in Maine. And some of the people I, that I, I, I help are people who have been here for 20 years, including people at the same age as my mother, but they haven't even bothered learning one word of English. And when I talk to them, I realize that there's a feeling that they're here temporarily, even though they're citizens. So like, oh, I believe one day there's going to be peace. And they've been saying this for the last 20 years, and it hadn't happened, unfortunately. And so what happens to them? They completely accept their kids to assimilate because there's no way that you can avoid that. You have to send your kid to the school, and the school is teaching English. It's not teaching the native language where your mother, that your mother speaks. So in this case, you spend all day with, your, with a class of these white kids running all over the place, or Latinos, or whatever, and you guys speak English, and you come home, and then in a few months, you start yelling in the house with English words, and mom yells back in Somali, and somehow you understand each other and you communicate. <laughs> and that's what I observe in the community. And I'm like, this is really funny and I love. And then at some point I realize how this identity is completely losing. You know, it's, it's just disappearing. So what's happening is some sort of revolution of what happened to America when the Irish, Italians, and all these people, ask these white people. <laughs> their their uh, great-grandfathers were from Scotland, Ireland, right? And there you go. Who are you today? Americans. So that's what I mean. It's not a bad thing. I mean, I totally understand. How do we do that? I, I mean, well, we're, we're living in the world of technology today. You know, just look at the example of the, is there an Indian or Chinese in the house? So they, what they do is wonderful. They, they bring their kids here, go into school, and then summer breaks, they go back home. And what do they do? They just learn the culture, the tradition, and they go to these famous places in their countries like the Taj Mahal and the Jaina Wall and all of So they somehow get connected to their country and they see how the country is developing technologically, economically, and everything else. And then the parents actually speak English. And for those who don't, at least know how to communicate. And then somehow they, they're able to get the kids start you know, speaking that. And then we have the salad growing up in this case. Um, for us, the worst problem is we can't send our kids back to Somalia because it's not safe. So what other options do we have? I have no answer to that question. Anybody has an answer? Um, okay, so I'm Nigerian-American. I was born in Nigeria, but I actually grew up in Southern Maryland. So I knew no other Africans, let alone any other Nigerians, let alone barely any black people. Um, and so it wasn't until I got to university where I finally started meeting other 1.5 generation 
African. So 1.5 generation is people who came here like seven and under, 10 and under, people like that. Um, and so my thing to you for those who can't go back is just surround yourself with a community of people who um, love your culture, know your culture, and want to share your culture. Um, and so now that I'm like grown and like, you know, can kind of pick and choose my friends, um, I have a lot more friends in the DC area. It's one of the reasons why I joined the Young African Professionals to meet other people who want to learn about and uplift um, our cultures back home. Um, and so like, for example, I used to joke about how like, I was like not hip at all with any of the Nigerian music until like college, you know? And then I then I started learning about like Ozonto and like P-Square and all those people. Um, Cause like that, like that's not what my parents know. My parents you watch, know like- Do you watch Nollywood stuff. movies? Uh, not not that much actually, because okay. the Nollywood movies in my it's house. It's the third largest movie production company. It is, in the world. yes, yeah. it's very true. Um, but all the Nollywood in, movies in my house are like the super old ones. It's not like the new ones nowadays, like Jennifer right. and things like that that are like hip. Um, but yeah, so my thing to you would just be to surround yourself with the people. Um, it's a great that, advice. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so. I guess while I'm here, <laughs> I had a question. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much um, for this amazing book. Um, and I have noticed a pattern in your um, in the story that you're telling about telling your story. So you started first, you know, with the cell phone, um, and then you went on to do the um, this American Life. Um, and so I guess. Okay, so also, just to give you a little context, I'm coming from the African Trade and Global Investment Summit that happened um, like inside D.C., like at the Ronald Reagan mm -hmm, building. Mm -hmm. And one of the topics that came up often was the importance of Africans telling our own stories, right? So for so long, people have told us the story of Africa. We believe it, we ingest it, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so this idea of Africans telling our own stories is something that just came up a lot. And so when you were up here talking about it and talking about how it affected your life, like tangibly, you know what I mean? Um, I thought that was just really powerful. So I guess my question to you is, what made you decide that it was time to tell your story in book format? Because like some people would have been like, well, I've been on NPR, cool, like done, told my story. You know what I mean? But you chose to take it that one step further and tell your story in the format of a book. So I wanted to kind of get your thinking behind that. Why did you decide that was a format you wanted? And why did you decide it was time to tell it in that format? Um, and then the follow-up question to that is, now that you've written this book, what's next? Awesome. <laughs> so um, the, 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 I've, before I came to the United States, I've only read a few, few books. And one of them was called The Art of the Deal. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I actually did. But he didn't become president at the time. And then to me, everything that is uh, made in America was American. So that's, that, that's how I saw it. And now I look back and I'm like, everything he told me is a lie, you know. Um, so, um, well, you know, they, I'm a natural storyteller. And uh, I, I, it was not only uh, This American Life, but it all began when I met Paul Salpik on the streets of Mogadishu, and he, you know, we met, and for the first time ever, I was able to practice my English with him, you know, asking, do you have a Pepsi Cola? And he gives me, and do you have some more, you know? And then he says, well, you have some sense of humor, and you have a story, and he publishes my story, and he started emailing me back and forth, and he says, send me updates of what's happening in Mogadishu. I wasn't going to school. I didn't have any other thing to do. My entire world was just put together exactly what was happening in the environment at the time, and which was very simple. I was writing email, and there's a bomb. I look through the window, and someone is over there, you know, running away with a 
with a broken bone or whatever. And then so that was kind of how my story was. It was just happening specifically at that specific time. And Paul collected all the emails that I sent him and he sent it to everywhere. And he's the one who actually kind of told me, well, it seems like you're really a wonderful storyteller. And where it comes from is, for those of you, we Somalis are um, storytellers. And my mom, you know, I have a chapter here where my mom talks about her animals. And she names every single one of them, hundreds of animals. And she tells me the stories of what every star stands for, you know, the, the land, um, the you know, grazing animals and how the nomadic life works and the engagement, the weddings, everything else. So somehow I kind of have that um, uh, feeling from her where I could tell the stories exactly as it was happening. But when I came to Maine, interestingly enough, and I ended up doing a, an installation job and I, I was paid $11 an hour um, working from six to six and super excited. And this American life puts together this story and the story goes out and people listen to it. And I receive messages on my Facebook. People saying, that was a wonderful story. And then at the end, they had questions. What do you feel now? What was it like growing up? And then I couldn't answer all of the questions to every individual. And then at one point, I get a phone call from This American Life themselves saying like, we got people who are really interested in a book. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Because this American lives, you know, they, they, they talk to agents and publishers and all that stuff. So they somehow got some connects. And then that's when I got into this, this world of like how publishing works, how this thing works. And I said, I'm ready to do that. You know, and uh, I called my mother about all the childhood stories because it's hard to remember every detail back home. But then with the help of um, mom's vivid memories, it was easy for me to put together the stories of what happened when I was five years old, six years old, seven years old, and a little bit above. Um, and that's how it worked. This is a nonfiction. It's, it's a memoir. You know, it's, it's, it's my story. And uh, somehow it's not hard. The, only, the, the hardest part of writing the book was the translation. Because I'm thinking in a language other than English. And then I, I, I write something. And I look what I wrote. And I look at my thinking. Somehow it doesn't really convey the message. And then I, I went go back and forth. So I, I remember staying up nights, going to Starbucks several times a day and just ordering coffee, sitting there and I could just go to whatever libraries in the area. Um, so um, that's how my book came together. So what's next? Um, a movie. Yeah. Yeah, we're working, we're working on a movie out of this book. So, which is a great thing. And uh, I'm trying to get into the movie. Uh, but they, they dictate. I hope so. I'm, I'm ready. Uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, so I had a question about the date of birth that you picked. Okay. So I'm also from Somalia, and I lived in a refugee camp for a few years prior to me um, being resettled in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so like every other refugee, um, my parents didn't know uh, the birthday. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I do ask her, oh, when, when was I born? Right. She, she describes like your mother did the weather or the stars. And I'm like, right. oh, great, mom. But right. what was the date? And every day is so those day. are the things that are important to our, to our family and our um, Somalis. So what made you pick June 20th? And did you know that that's World Refugee Day? Mm -hmm. Is that why you picked it? Well, yes. <laughs> 
I actually, yeah, that was the reason I, I was discussing with, discussing with my brother. And I said, you know, and we were refugees. This is in Kenya when I actually was thinking of this. But they didn't let me write down that. Um, June 20th is my birthday. June 21st is my brother's birthday. <laughs> Just one day apart. And now I was telling him, because you can, you're coming to Canada, so you have to have a, a different time. And I was asking him to change his birthday because we need to have two different cakes. You know, <laughs> we can't eat a cake tonight and then the next night. So, I mean, most importantly, I was trying to be professional. I was trying to be someone who I taught myself English so I can be like anybody else. So I don't want to stick with January 1, whereas like um, if you were my Facebook friend and if I was January 1, you would probably find 800 friends that are born on the same day. So you don't know how to say happy birthday to all of them. You just send a mass email. <laughs> right. So yeah, totally understand. My mother doesn't care about it. She doesn't know when she was born. But she tells me, like you said, it's, it was a hot day. And I'm like, every day is a hot day. It's a hot day. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Abdi, thank you so much for telling this story. That's not about pirates and, uh, and, and Black Hawk Down. Truly <laughs> appreciate it. And just to add to that, uh, I also love when I heard the first time they asked you to fill a form and you have to find a place to put and you like, because the first time I saw it, I was like, well, maybe I was disappointed because I didn't see my tribe in there. <laughs> right. But I, people who know, cannot understand it, I never heard right. of identifying yourself, although right. everybody over there is, because homogeneous and everybody looks like, but right. nobody thinks about us. Right. color in terms of what color are you, what nation, you know, ethnic you are, so that was really a shocker for me. The one thing I have to say to follow up with the young Somali American was saying is in terms of going back or connecting to the culture, although there are some violent areas, even even in, but there are, my brother just took his family summer to parts of so, uh, Somaliland, Hargeza, and mm. I know, I've talked to a friend who just came back from Hunan, Posaso, she actually moved from America to Posaso to open a clinic there, and she's a medical doctor. So there are areas that are peaceful that you can take your children to and the family to, uh, it might not be your hometown where you're from, but there right. are other parts of the country that where people go to uh, and, and, and are relatively safe. And, and, and the way, and I, one, one time, one summer, I sent my son back home, and my sister was going there uh, at Somalia and Hargeza, and when he came back, he was completely changed. Mm. Uh, I had, had this prospect before everything was about the game and buy this, and, but when I say now, I'm sending money to someone. It's like, oh, no, no, daddy, I made, you know, $20 too, so they can right. really learn from and have a disp have appreciation for what they have here. And the last thing I want to uh, want to say is about the Somalis, because you all this here about the pirates and about the terrorists, but what, what I want you to know about the Somalis to add to your story, mm -hmm. is Somalis are extremely resilient people, extremely proud people, extremely entrepreneurial people. So if you go to, from... Even in Kenya, if you go, you know, the easily where they went to refugees, I know everybody goes there to shop now. Uh, they start with a little tea shop, and the next thing you know, he has a big store. Mm -hmm. From South Africa to Uganda, even in the United States, the places Somali refugees went. Even Maine, you came from Maine. When the first Somalis went to Maine, the mayor wrote a letter public saying, you are not welcome here, you are, you know, uh, so on and so forth. Now they took over that whole area, transformed the community, opened the store of the store. Same thing in Seattle, Washington, same thing in Columbus, Ohio, same thing in Minnesota. Extremely entrepreneurial people, extremely resilient people. And Somalis will be back 
and that's already happening. But the news is focusing on on the violence, on the, uh, that that. And there, I'm not saying there's no problem, but I'm very confident that the Somalis will be bad. And with a lot of Americans who have an encounter with the Somalis, we're almost like the Irish of Africa. We're extremely resilient people, extremely internal freedom, like you said, oral society, a lot of potential. So Somalis will be back. Right. Uh, it's, um, it's already starting. And, uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that um, um, our sister was, was asking, remember that question? She said she was born here and her mom somehow displaced from Somalia. And uh, she was trying to ask me if there's a hope that something is going to happen in Somalia. But I have been there until 2011, and um, as a child, as a teenager, as uh, in my 20s, I it's it's hard to find an opportunity. It seems like year after year, you know, we had a generation that was growing up in the war, and completely, the Somalis within Somalia are completely somehow disconnected from how the rest of the world works. But then Somalis outside of Somalia are getting connected. To the rest of the world and somehow kind of trying to help what's you know the, the communities in Somalia um, but we have political crisis you know it's 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 everywhere I mean there's a president and the president is from Buffalo New York and he's an American citizen and he was a great prime minister at some point and now you know we he's the president of Somalia for over a year but he can't even you know pacify the entire capital city of Mogadishu and it's not because he doesn't have enough military strength or he doesn't have enough cabinet members. It's just the society, the population are completely um, disappointed in everything that comes because they have seen so many different governments that came in and were not able to help. So they somehow feel like, you know, let us alone. We, this is how life works. We, you know, this is, we, we're getting used to it. We're dressed up. We're going... Um, you know, they go to Lido Beach and uh, other places. So if you look at images that are coming from Mogadishu, it's completely two different images. You see the completely destroyed side of the city, and then you see this thriving area where the Turkeys have built some military bases. The U.S. is there uh, on the boots and other places. So in this small area is where there's a heavily guarded um, zone, and then civilians can somehow go and enjoy a few moments and then leave. But then there's the majority of the problem is coming from uh, the radical Islamists that are actually targeting anybody you know, in the city, as long as you're not with them. So as long as you're not with them, they're going to kill you. So that's a problem. That's what scares people. So they don't want to associate with the government because they know that there will be, you know, nobody's going to take care of their um, or guarantee their security. So they're going to die anyway. So they just try to disassociate from, from the government, but somehow they're ready and prepared for peace. That's why they're going to all of these places, and there is a growing uh, television shows that's coming from Mogadishu, which is interesting, really, that you can watch on Universal TV, and uh, if you watch that, it doesn't feel like Mogadishu. Mark has been there, so you know. Um, I, I used to blog for him. He works for the uh, International Refugee. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, I completely agree with you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. 
and please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.